Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. We'll be looking at that passage in Hebrews 4 in just a minute. Rafig Abdul Mortlin clearly needed to choose another career. The 38-year-old found that what he was doing for a living put him under great pressure. Well, what was his job? CEO of some thriving company, financial manager of some large firm, a family therapist, a corrections officer? No, none of those. What did Rafig Abdul-Mortland do for a living that was causing such stress? He robbed stores. He robbed stores. Matter of fact, Mortland committed a string of robberies in Hennepin County, Minnesota. Mortland held up eight local businesses. And during his crime spree, Mortland received the nickname, the Rolades Robber. The Rolades Robber. And this came about after Mortland repeatedly asked store clerks for antacid tablets while the felony was in progress. His explanation? Mortland said he needed the antacid because the job was too stressful. Robbery gave him a bad case of indigestion. Well, hopefully he got to relax a little while serving 10 years in prison. It's hard to feel sorry for the guy, right? I mean, after all, what he was doing was illegal. He certainly could have made a different choice. But what's causing you indigestion? I doubt it's robbing stores. How well are you dealing with the pressures of life? Feeling stressed? Overwhelmed? Ever felt like walking away from all your responsibilities? Are you living on Rolades? <laughs> I mean, you may be able to fake it to give others the impression that all is okay, even though inside you might be a complete mess. The question was asked on a radio station this past week. Maybe you heard it. The question was, what do you wish others knew about you? What do you wish others knew about you? And one person answered it this way. She said, I wish people knew that I may look like I'm doing okay, but the reality is I am a duck. Gliding along the top of the pond all seems peaceful and fine, but under the waterline my feet are going a mile a minute. It's hard to hide that after a while, isn't it? As theologian John Lennon, no, I'm kidding. John Lennon astutely wrote, forget the theologian part. He said, you can shine your shoes and wear a suit. You can comb your hair and look quite cute. You can hide your face behind the smile. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. You can go to church and sing a hymn. You can judge me by the color of my skin. You can live a lie until you die. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. And sadly, many today are crippled inside, right here, right here in this room. It might be stress, might be guilt, might be regrets, might be chronic aches, might be loneliness, might be pain. Where do we go with that? Where do we go with our pain? Where can we find help in time of need? Well, if you're not there, I hope you're there to the book of Hebrews Book of Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 that Dan just read for us. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, Hebrews is at the back of your Bibles. If you open to the last book, Revelation, and take a left, go back a few pages, a few books of the Bible, and you'll be there. Hebrews chapter 4. 
Now, if you have been present at all since January, you should be aware by now that we are working our way through Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Our hope as pastors and elders is to affiliate with EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, that in going forward as a church well beyond my time here, the leaders believe the church will be better for it. And if you've, and if you've um, attended here at all in the last six, seven years while I've been here, you know that my approach to preaching is to work through books of the Bible rather than what we're doing right now, which is more topical. So trust me when I say this has stretched me. But the benefit is well worth it to be more convinced of what we believe, especially in the day and time in which we live. I cannot emphasize enough the timeliness of our working through these statements of faith. Because church, we need a true north uncompromising beliefs that keep us steady and thriving in a world that worships tolerance and relativism. What we believe defines who we are, where we're headed, keeps us steady. And last week we looked at article number four, the belief about Jesus Christ, and so I want to remind you of EFC's article of faith on the person of Jesus. You'll see it on the screen. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, Fully God and fully man, one person and two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our priest, high priest, and advocate. And we spent our time. Last week, looking at the bulk of that statement by surfacing several only Jesus statements that revealed uh, the uniqueness of Jesus and that it's the person of Jesus that really is a slam dunk that Christianity is true. Well, this morning our focus is going to be in the last part of that statement. Jesus ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. We've got to ask, well, what's the practical application of that? Well, the takeaway for us, I want to give it to you up front, as I often do, from Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 is this. Run to the one who can give you timely help. Run to the one who can give you timely help. All right, first principle this morning is in Jesus, in Jesus we find full and complete uh, forgiveness. All right, look with me at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fir firmly to the faith we profess. Now we're introduced in verse 14 to the great high priest who is Jesus. Now in our day, it's a bit challenging to understand the concept of high priest. There are no high priests around. But if in, in your personal time, uh, in God's word this past week, you were reading Leviticus, I'm sure many of you were, especially chapters 8 through 10 and chapter 16, you'd have some background information upon which the writer of Hebrews draws. The book of Hebrews has an Old Testament feel to it. It talks about priests and sacrificial system. Now, at the risk that you might check out for the next few minutes, 
I want to say some things about the sacrificial system for it gives us a better understanding of the section in Hebrews we're tackling this morning. I want to remind you that sacrificial system is not something that man made up. It was originated and was initiated by God. The sacrificial system, like the law given to the people, never was meant to save anyone. Hopefully what we all understand is that in all of its parts, the sacrificial system pointed forward to the one who fulfilled and became the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's really, it is difficult, as I said, for the contemporary mind to grasp the significance of of sacrificing animals and the shedding of blood. It's an entirely different world than where we live our lives. But it's in the sacrificial system that God's covenanted people might understand the wonder of redemption. For the people to offer up animals as sacrifice again and again and again pointed to at least three things. First of all, it pointed to how costly forgiveness was. How costly forgiveness was. Secondly, it points, as we would see firsthand, they would see firsthand that sin's punishment was death. And thirdly, it should drive home to all the participants that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. And so the high priest, then they come in, and they were expected to represent the people in matters related to God. And one of their ways in doing this was to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so, so try and picture this, and, and stay with me here. The high priest in the Old Testament, one day a year, the Day of Atonement, he would pass through the tabernacle. You can know kind of pass through and come back to that in a minute. One day a year, this high priest, he would enter where the sacrifice was performed in the outer courts with the blood, and then he would pass through the entryway into the holy place, where he would pass through the holy of holies to the mercy seat, and there he would sprinkle the blood to make atonement for the people, and once a year he would do this. And just as the high priest in the Old Testament Passed through the tabernacle one day a year. It tells us in verse 14, Jesus passed through the heavens. Now, now in, in Jewish thought, there were multiple heavens. That's why it's plural here. But the real emphasis is that Jesus, who left the glory of heaven to make atonement for our sins, ascended and return to the glory of heaven and is qualified to be our high priest, the perfect priest, because he paid the price for our sin once and for all. Now, if you're still with me, it kind of looks like you are, or you fake it pretty well. The rest of verse 14 now exhorts us to do what? Hold firmly to the faith we profess, as the NIV translates it. Now, to hold firmly or hold fast, as some translations have it, means to seize or apprehend something. It was used in arresting a criminal. We're told here to arrest or take into custody our profession, or really better translated, confession. Not profession, confession. What confession? Well, in the original language, the act of confessing was a statement of allegiance to something or someone. 
So we are told here uh, to hold fast to our allegiance to the work of Christ on the cross. That's significant as we live our life this week. And when we talk about confession, because I want us to see something about our understanding of confession. Our confession of sins can be very self-centered if we're not careful. We can go through the act of confessing in order to feel better. I mean, is that not the nature of confessional booths where one confesses to the human priest? I can get this off my chest. I can, I can, I can you know, speak of my wrongs and I can feel better. I can sleep now at night. Reminds me of a shoplifter who wrote to a local store where he had been stealing for several years. And he wrote, I've just become a Christian and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here's $100 that I owe you from what I have stolen from your store. And then he signs his name in a little postscript at the bottom. He adds, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> That's how we think of confession. If I can't sleep, and I, must, I need to confess this so I can sleep. I can have a clear conscience. That's not the confession that's spoken of here in Hebrews that we're to hold fast to. It's to hold fast to apprehend the work of Christ on the cross. That's where we need to go with our sins. We're to hold firmly to our belief in his work and what he has done for us. And we're going to spend more time on Jesus' work next week as we look at um, article number five. But for now, in Jesus, in Jesus, we find full and complete forgiveness. And church, we can live each day as forgiven people. We can. We ought to. My mind went... It's kind of how my mind goes. But my mind went to um, the car wash. All right? We, we, you know, especially these days, you go to car wash and you get all that salt and dirt off the car. And if you're like me, when you get through to the end, you get out and you look at it and you inspect it and you're impressed at how clean it is. <laughs> and if you're like me, you try to avoid all the construction sites and everything else so it doesn't get all dirty again. But then you, you pull in your driveway, you get out and you notice it already has some salt and dirt on it. So you turn around and you go back to the car wash and you run it through again. <laughs> it keeps getting dirty, you keep getting it clean. But if I could show you a car wash where you never need your car washed again, you'd say, show me that car wash, right? All right, is there a way to be clean permanently? Not talking about cars now. Is there a way in which you never have to go to someone to get your sins forgiven again and again and again? You go, show me. You're hopefully saying, I know this. The sins of yesterday, the sins of today, all the sins of tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, guess what? Forgiven. Are you beating yourself up because of some sin in your life? It's not just confessing, agreeing with God that you've sinned. Keep going to the cross, recognize, apprehend, hold fast to, get help from the Lord because there isn't anything, anything that's not already covered by your sacrifice. Nothing. Full and complete in Jesus. And secondly, in Jesus, we find one who's able to feel along with you. 
And Jesus, we find one who's able to feel along with you. Now, verse 15 now in Hebrews 4 tells us why Jesus is most qualified to be our great high priest. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, there's so much here in this one verse. Um, but I won't be able to get into all of it unless you just wanted to blow right past the Super Bowl tonight. But let me, let me start just by drawing your attention to the word weaknesses. We'll try and get as much of this as we can here in the time we have. The word weaknesses. That word weaknesses was often used for those who suffered a debilitating disease. That what a person wanted to do, he just couldn't do physically. That's where that weakness is. That's what it means. And a lot of you in this room, you understand that. Now, by extension, it could apply to uh, the incapacity to do what we want to do. It's really weaknesses speaking to our limitations that we all experience in life, right? So many things out of our control. They're weaknesses we experience in life. And life is hard sometimes. It can feel overwhelming. And we just want to scream, well, before you do, let me read this, tell you about a news story of a man in Germany who was arrested for screaming. Residents of the town of Aiken, Germany, called police complaining about a series of loud yells coming from a local forest. They found this 25-year-old man who explained that walking the forest at night and screaming as loudly as he could was his way of dealing with stress. Well, the man's screams, however, frightened all the neighbors, which prompted them to call the police, and he was taken and fined 75 euros, which would be around equivalent to $85. And that stressed him out even more. <laughs> but the police told him, said, uh, don't go back out in the forest in some neighborhood and scream, please. But I thought to myself, if I ever, have I felt like just walking away from my desk and, and, and just screaming? Yes! I have thought of it. Have you ever felt just absolutely overwhelmed? Well, we can run to Jesus with whatever weakens us because he understands. Jesus sympathizes, and that word means to feel along with someone. We try to feel along with others, and we should continue to work at that. But sometimes we just can't really understand and sympathize. Jesus can. Why is he able to feel along with you? The verse answers it. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now that phrase, was without sin, points to the truth that he led a sinless, perfect life. We talked about that last week. It also refers to, I believe, to Jesus being the exception to all people inheriting Adam's sinful nature. He did not, born of a virgin. So Jesus' temptation then could not come from within evil here, but from on the outside, external. And that always raises the question, <laughs> could Jesus have given in to temptation? In his humanity, yes. But if he did, he would not have been God. In his divinity, he could not sin. Okay, and some argue then that Jesus did not really experience temptation as we do. Because the assumption is that the capacity for sin is necessary for the true experience of temptation. The assumption is the capacity for sin 
is necessary for the true experience of temptation. I would argue the opposite is true. Jesus experienced temptation. Get this. He experienced temptation in a greater way than we do because he is God because he could not sin. He felt the full power of sin by resisting all the way through to the end, which often for us is not the case. We succumb. Jesus' sinlessness heightened his awareness of the power of it. And one of my professors at college used this illustration, illustration to drive home the point. He said, if your skin had never been exposed to the sun, your skin would be more sensitive to the sun than the one who was readily exposed to it. Right? Or we might consider a body that's not exposed to bacterial infection is more vulnerable to exposure uh, to that infection. That person would have a heightened awareness of infection. Jesus and his humanity had a heightened awareness, sensitivity to sin, having never been exposed to it. (laughs) Try and wrap your mind around that. But let me ask you this question. Let's get real practical here. Who knows more about the power of temptation than the one who never succumbed to it? I mean, who would you rather go to when faced with temptation? Someone who's given in to it? Or one who knows how to win the battle with temptation we face? That's very interesting. In Matthew's uh, account of Jesus' temptation by Satan, at the end of the encounter, it says uh, in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, it says, the angels attended Jesus. Really, better put, the angels strengthened Jesus. Why, why did he, he need to be strengthened? Because the temptation took everything out of him. He needed to be strengthened. Do you think he experienced firsthand the power of temptation? So, so what area of temptation right now is staring you in the face? You need timely help. Run to Jesus. What trial is testing your patience? You need timely help. Run to Jesus. He has the ability to come alongside of you because he feels it. He's able to sympathize. He's able to feel along with you. He now stands ready to help you in the middle of whatever you're going through right now. All right, thirdly, in Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. In Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. Since he made atonement for our sins and ascended into heaven as our high priest, since he can understand our experiences in life, look what it says in verse 16 now. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy, find grace to help us in our time of need. Now the thought around the word confidence is boldness or openness. We can be outspoken with God. We can, we can run to Jesus, the, 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 we can run to the throne of grace. The throne of grace is only used here in the Bible. The Bible speaks of the throne often as a place of judgment. Well, because of what Jesus has done, the throne of judgment has become the throne of grace. And so in the pressures of life, are weakening us and overwhelming us. We need that safe place we can run to, that place where we do not have to fear rejection, that place where we are accepted on the basis of Christ's mercy. We sang about so much this morning. 
We don't have to come to the throne of grace tentatively. You know, like God, I, I know you don't really want to hear from me again. I mean, you're probably tired of me. And you just, 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 if you could just, God, one more time, just hear me out on this. Just one, this, I won't ask you. Is that how we approach God? I think sometimes we do. No, no, we're to approach him with confidence, it says, with boldness. And you go, but pastor, you don't know what I have done. Pastor, you don't know my past. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's ugly, really ugly. You don't even know what I did this past week. Is guilt giving you indigestion? Is guilt keeping you from running to him? Max Lucado uses this illustration uh, referring to guilt as a sack of stones that we carry around, the sack, and it's a bunch of stones. And, we, and he says, we take that sack of stones with us to work. We take that sack of stones of, of guilt with us to school. We take a, that sack of stones of guilt with us to happy hour or to our counselor's office or to a weekend rendezvous. He says, we even take that sack of guilt, that sack of stones with us to church. In all these places, we're looking for relief of our guilt, but instead we take the sack out the door with us and we go through life sluggish, tired, and just weighed down and burdened. Because there in your bag of guilt, he says, is the pain of wasted years or wild living or choices that continue to have repercussions. In our sack, there's the guilt over the time we lost our cool. In the sack of stones is the, st- is the time when, when, when we lied on our resume or, or the time we fudged on our income tax. There's a stone of guilt of that time when you spoke that careless, hurtful word to your parents or to a friend. Oh, that bag of guilt, he says, can be so heavy at times. Where do we go with that guilt? Where can we find timely help for all that guilt? Principle number four this morning is in Jesus, we have one who pleads our case. In Jesus now, we have one who pleads our case. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God as our high priest and our advocate. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is our advocate? Well, there's a great passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah, it's right before um, I always want to say Malachi because I, I've always said it, but Malachi, all right, he's not the Italian prophet. It's Malachi. I just, I've trained my brain here. Malachi. Just before Malachi is Zechariah. All right. Write it down. Zechariah chapter 3. It's a perfect illustration, I believe, of the role of Jesus as our advocate. I want you to check it out for yourself. The community groups will be looking at this. But Zechariah chapter 3, that's your homework. Check it out. This is what's going on in Zechariah chapter 3. There's this vision given to the prophet Zechariah of a court scene in which the nation of Israel is on trial. The prosecuting attorney is none other than Satan himself. The judge is God the Father. And the defense attorney, the advocate if you will, is the angel of the Lord, likely referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. And Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 says, it's on, your, it's on the screen, then he, God, showed me in a vision now, Joshua the high priest. Joshua, by the way, represents Israel here. 
It says, Joshua the high priest, Israel, standing before the angel of the Lord, that I think is the pre-incarnate Christ, and Satan standing at the right side to accuse him. And the accusation, the charge against God's people is this. How can such a sinful people be of any use to a holy God? The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, speaks in Israel's defense. I want you to notice that the Lord doesn't say to those accusations. He doesn't say, Satan, you have it all wrong here. Israel means well and they've been good enough. He doesn't say what you're saying about Israel is false. No, the Lord says to Satan, the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And by the way, he's the only one who can rebuke Satan. No, we're not told any way to rebuke Satan. The Lord takes care of that. He rebukes Satan. It says, the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this nation a burning stick snatched from the fire? And then in this vision, something powerful transpires. The filthy garments of this high priest who symbolizes Israel, they are taken off and removed. And the excrement-covered clothes are replaced with beautiful festival clothing. There's an exchange. It's beautiful. What's the picture? Left to ourselves before God, every single one of us, including myself, is guilty. When Satan puts us on trial, he will lack no evidence to prove our guilt. There's plenty of material to work with. We are what he says about us and more. So we can't try and muster up enough goodness in ourselves to be of any kind of match for Satan. He's correct in his guilty charges heaped upon us. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. It doesn't matter how many self-improvement groups we've joined, number of self-help books we read. It doesn't even matter how often we attend church. No amount of good deeds and self-righteousness will protect us from the accusation Satan fires at us. And as our accuser speaks of our offenses and sins, all we can do is raise our hands and say, guilty as charged. There's only one way we can withstand Satan's accusations. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. And church, if your trust is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then Christ's righteousness is the ultimate answer to the accusations thrown at us by Satan or thrown at us by others or by the voice in our own head that tells us we're useless and we're not fit to even be a child of God. You ever gone there? I have. I can't be his child. My life, are you kidding me? As someone put it, I have the cover of Jesus on the book of my life. So every time we sin, our advocate, Jesus Christ, and I love how John Piper puts it, our advocate, Jesus Christ, he opens his portfolio and he lays the exhibits of Good Friday on the bench, the lashing, uh, I mean, excuse me, on the bench before the judge, photographs of the crown of thorns, the lashing, the mocking soldiers, the agonies of the cross, and the final cry of victory, it is finished, all put on the judge's desk on on his bench. See, the only thing that can keep us from despairing before a holy God is that we have an advocate in heaven and he pleads our case, not on the basis of our perfection, but on the basis of his propitiation and that he has sacrificed for our sins. That's it. 
And a little boy named Timmy, he was constantly being picked on by the neighborhood bully. And this bully would come right up to Timmy's front lawn and and scare him half to death and Timmy would run into his house. Well, one day, as this bully stood out on, on the little boy's front yard, Timmy decided enough was enough, and he stood up to this bully. Timmy didn't run. Instead, he stood his ground. And the bully suddenly backed down. Timmy could see fear all over the bully's face, and he thought to himself, man, I'm really something. And just as he was starting to feel really big, he heard a noise from behind him, and Timothy, Timmy turned around, and he noticed that his dad was standing behind him on the front porch. You see, the bully wasn't afraid of Timmy, but of the presence of his father. And as we're being bullied by the evil one, flexing our muscles won't cause him to back down. That's why I say we rebuke him. It doesn't cause him to back down. Instead, it's the presence of Christ who stands in our defense and shows the enemy his wounds and his scars that provided our redemption. It is only as we place our trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross that we can meet the struggles of life with confidence that we're forgiven, we're secure, and our bag of guilt has been paid for and lifted from us. So then, church, run to Jesus. Go confidently and boldly to the throne of grace so that, as the end of verse 16 says, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need. Let that sink in. So when tempted to sin, go to the throne of grace, like right then. When your struggle seems too much to bear, go to the throne of grace, like right then. Is life really hard right now for you? There was a marathon, as you know, for most runners, it seems long. It seemed long if it was only a couple miles for me, but it's actually 26.2 miles, always. Marathons are always 26.2 miles. Except for the Lakeshore Marathon held in Chicago on Memorial Day weekend. That day, the 529 runners who finished actually ran 27.2 miles, one mile more than they were supposed to. Only nobody told them so at the time. The organizers simply miscalculated where the finish line should be. I mean, the whole race apparently was a mess, missing mile markers, confused directions, and one woman who had been leading early on got completely turned around and said, I was so confused, I just, I just wanted to cry. The organizer issued an apology, kind of, on a website. He said, last minute changes caused us to miscalculate and we foolishly added an extra mile. Oh, how terrible. And I thought, maybe life has kind of felt like that for some of you in this room. Admittedly, I'd say kind of for me too. Someone added a mile. I mean, it's tough enough to get through a week and then someone throws you a curve. It's tough enough to get through a week and then you have this impossible deadline. You have another sick child. You have an overdue notice on a bill. Someone walks out on you. I don't know what it is for you. But when you feel like 
You're forced, you've been forced to run farther than anybody should have to. It helps to remember that Jesus ran farther than you. <laughs> he knows. He knows. So what do you need to bring to the Lord? What do you need to bring to the one who can give you the timely help you need right now? Stop trying to do it yourself. How do you bring it to the one who can give you timely help in your time of need? Let's pray. God, I know there's a lot, a lot there. Not only from Hebrews, but then turning to Zechariah 3 and referring to Leviticus and the sacrificial system. There's just so much there, but I pray in all of that, what wouldn't be lost is the extent you went to give up your life, shed your blood, so you could pay the price for our sin. God, please help us to, to, to ponder that, think on that, and live as forgiven people, not carelessly, not trampling your grace, but living as forgiven people. And we keep coming back to that cross. and Thank you for it and for what you've done for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.